It's not really rainfall that drives the disease, it's humidity. But if we don't get a rain, we don't have high enough humidity for bacteria to survive or, or grow very well it, in, in a lot of the prairies. And so it's really humidity and temperature that will drive the, the disease. That's the, that's the environment side of the disease triangle. And so, you know, if you've got, if you've got 20 to 25 degrees and relative humidity above 80, those bacteria are gonna be multiplying real fast. Hello folks, and welcome to the Growing Point Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Boychin. Our goal with this podcast is simple, to provide Alberta producers and agronomists with timely, relevant, and valuable agronomic knowledge through interviews with various experts in the field of agriculture. We hope the agronomic information from this and future podcasts brings value to you and your farm. So in this episode, we speak to Dr. Michael Harding of Alberta Agriculture and Forestry. Harding is a plant pathologist who works in plant diseases that impact crop production. And in this podcast, we discuss the increasing issue of bacterial disease in Western Canada. Harding explains why we're seeing these increased issues, what potential impacts these diseases may bring, what we do and don't know about these diseases, as well as what producers can do to protect themselves. It's a very informative conversation and we hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Hello, Dr. Mike Harding, how are you doing this morning? Thanks for taking the time to chat with me this morning. Yeah, no, happy to be here. I'm doing pretty well, all things considered. It's been an interesting year, but we're doing fine. It certainly has been an interesting year. Um, you know, maybe for those who don't know you or, or aren't as familiar, could you give yourself a little bit of an introduction to let everyone know where you work and what you work on and and uh, kind of give some background to the conversation we're having today? I'm, uh, uh, I work for Alberta Agriculture and Forestry. I'm a research scientist in plant pathology, which means that I uh, look at and study plant diseases on our crops, Alberta crops. And my primary mandate is surveillance and diagnostics, um, but we also participate with other uh, colleagues at Ag Canada and universities doing some research. I mean, disease in the prairies, it's, it's, it's not a contained problem. So the, the, the fact, you know, working with various organizations for this thing just shows kind of the breadth that um, disease has in, in Western Canada and, and the teamwork that's required to, to help manage and, and understand some of these issues. So, um, but we are here to talk today about bacterial blight. Um, this is something that has come up a few times this year and we're seeing increased um, um, issues of it in, you know, not just Alberta, um, but in Manitoba and Saskatchewan as well. Um, so maybe, you know, why are we seeing these, these increased issues? What is bacterial blight um, and why is this important right now? So um, on cereal crops, there are two bacterial diseases that we could potentially see on things like wheat, barley, and oat. And uh, one is bacterial blight. Um, in oat, sometimes we see halo blight. And these diseases are caused by a bacterium called Pseudomonas. And then we also have something called bacterial leaf streak, which instead of causing spots on the leaves, it'll form these long 
elongated lesions in between the veins. And bacterial leaf streak is caused by a bacterium called Xanthomonas. So these are the two bacterial diseases that uh, can show up in Alberta cereal crops. They generally aren't a big problem. Um, and, and so we've seen them on and off for decades, uh, but usually just a curiosity. Oh, there's a little bit of leaf spot or, you know, leaf streak. But uh, <clears throat> for some reason, um, I guess the stars have kind of aligned, so to speak, for things like bacterial leaf streak to start to become a major issue in some of our fields, particularly in Southern Alberta. And so um, probably things like introduction of the pathogen, either on seed or being blown in through storm systems. So the pathogen has become more prevalent. And then the environmental conditions exist for the disease to become impactful on a, you know, in a cereal crop. And this has been the case all across sort of the cereal growing regions of North America and even in other parts of the world. For one reason or another, this disease is kind of uh, making a comeback or, or uh, sort of taking a run at our cereal crops in a way that we haven't ever seen before. And so what the precise reasons for that are, we don't know. We just know that all three sides of that disease triangle are coming together more than they ever have before. And um, uh, beginning to cause some real issues in some of our fields. I know I've heard um, issues in wheat uh, and I know I've, I've heard um, issues in oats. It, it, you know, is this as, as prevalent in things like rye and barley? Um, can it equally um, impact these crops or are there certain crops that it has um, more of a, a prevalence or issue on? So for the case of uh, bacterial blight or halo blight, it is a different um, pathovar of the bacterium that causes the disease on oat than it does on wheat and barley. So depending on the pathovar that's around, we'll determine which crop will sort of see those symptoms. Same for bacterial leaf streak, that Xanthomonas translucens species is divided up into a number of pathovars. And there's about seven of them. And depending on which pathovar you have will determine the host range. And so right now we're seeing uh, Xanthomonas translucens undulosa, which means that it can cause disease on barley and on wheat. Um, and um, so those are, the, those are the two primary crops that, that are kind of at risk for the path of, pathovar that we've identified so far. I haven't heard of any barley fields yet that have had significant yield loss. I've only been involved in fields or had fields reported to me that are wheat. So from for my perspective, um, it's mainly been wheat crops that have been affected. I assume you're getting samples in in your labs and, and kind of verifying that these are the issues are. Most of what I've heard is, has been anecdotal at this point. So. Um, uh, you know, I've heard of a few a few oat fields um, that potentially had uh, look, what looked like bacterial issues. So um, interesting, though. So it's so you know, wheat is the major concern at this point um, from what we're seeing. Yeah, we did a small survey in oat. It was only about five fields, but we found bacterial blight. Well, halo blight is what it's called in in oat, 
in all five. So the disease certainly was not hard to find in, in oat fields in 2020. In cereal fields, it was more hit and miss. Um, and, and we didn't do a survey that specifically that characterized the incidence or prevalence of leaf streak. Um, but we certainly saw it in a number of fields and we did have a number of samples brought to us. Now we, we confirmed that it was a bacterial disease issue by doing a test called bacterial streaming. What that means is we cut the lesions open, put them in a droplet of water on a microscope slide, and then look for bacteria essentially come pouring out of the leaf tissue. And the only time that's gonna happen is if there's a bacterial infection. And so we confirmed all of the cases of uh, bacterial infection, but it's really challenging to identify which pathovar is there. And, and we still don't really have a great way to do that, but we definitely know that there were, you know, in a number of cases where there were streak-like symptoms that run parallel to the veins, um, the majority of those were bacterial leaf streak. When we, when we see this bacteria in the field, um, you know, how, how obvious is it going to be in the field? Is it going to differ between different fields? Um, and if it does, what's causing those, those different um, uh, kind of infection levels within a field. So yeah, they, that's you're really getting to the heart of sort of management um, with that question, which is great. Uh, so the 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 way that the bacteria can be introduced is either on seed, or it could survive at or in the field on volunteers or perennial grassy weeds or crop residues, or it could be blown in through a thunderstorm system that came from a field that had bacterial streak, bacterial leaf streak. So those are kind of the primary ways that the disease, the, the, the inoculum could end up in your field. So then once the inoculum is there, if you've got temperatures, you know, between 20 and 25 degrees Celsius and high humidity, the bacterium is going to replicate and divide very quickly. So bacteria have generation time of, you know, 16 to 30 hours. That means the population is doubling every day. And so there, there's literally billions of bacteria being produced when the conditions are right. And then those can be splashed around through rain or irrigation, and they can be caught up in storm systems and moved around. And uh, so because they, can, because they can divide and essentially multiply so rapidly, it doesn't take a long time with those right environmental conditions to get a ton of inoculum in the field. So it can be, it can spread very quickly. And once it's introduced by one of those three ways, either on seed or surviving on residue or perennial weeds or volunteers or being blown in, then it just needs a window of opportunity of those environmental conditions and it'll take off. Uh, now you asked a question as well about, um, recognizing the symptoms. Um, do you mind if I spend a minute talking about that? Absolutely. And I, you know, <clears throat> it's, I think it would be interesting to discuss not just visually, but, you know, um, temporally, you know, where and when should we be looking for these disease symptoms? Does it come up early? Is it only something that's going to come up later? Um, you know, not just visually, what does it look like, but where or when should I be addressing this potential issue? Uh, good question. So as far as timing goes, um, 
you're probably not going to start seeing symptoms, um, you know, on, you know, one to five leaves in a cereal crop. Uh, it's probably more when you're getting close to canopy closure and you've got a bit of a micro environment or microclimate get that builds in the, in the lower leaves. Um, but you could start to see symptoms at any time if the three sides of the disease triangle come together. So there's no time during the development of the crop that it's resistant to it. So you could start seeing it any time. Um, but we generally start seeing it more around, uh, you know, canopy closure and the real, you know, um, I guess the real impactful infections are the ones that take place on the flag leaf or the, in the upper canopy. So it, it is good to keep your eye open for it uh, early, you know, when you're scouting for weeds or, you know, doing other things in the field, scouting for other things. It's a good idea to keep your eye out for it, but it's really at flag leaf emergence that you want to make sure that you, you know, aren't going to run into a, a serious issue. Um, so recognizing symptoms uh, is tough. Um, you can have bacterial leaf spot and leaf streak lesions that look a lot like fungal leaf spots. Uh, I even had a field that was brought to my attention that um, I was told had stripe rust and it actually was bacterial leaf streak because those it, it, it was present in long stripes on the leaf and, and the lesions had started to turn yellow as the tissue was dying. They became chlorotic and it looked like a yellow rust on the leaves. And so you, you have to be careful and don't jump to conclusions when you see a yellow stripe. It might be stripe rust, but it might be something else. And so um, it, it's, it's sometimes not easy to tell. And sometimes I get fooled. So I'll see a symptom and think, oh, that's bacterial leaf streak. And I'll cut the leaf open and there's no bacteria in it. It's a tan spot lesion and vice versa. So in some cases, if you're not sure, um, it's good to get a diagnosis done by either a lab or a you know, trusted agronomist or somebody who's maybe better at recognizing symptoms. Um, and, and it's real easy to know if it's a bacterial infection, as I said, by just doing that simple bacterial streaming test under a microscope. So any lab that has a microscope can do the test. Um, now, uh, I think it's, um, this isn't something we're used to scouting for. And, and so I think the, I've just told you that it's sometimes challenging uh, to, to recognize it, but I'd say probably in most cases, it's not that hard to recognize if you're looking for it. And I think the problem that we've had in the past is that it's been so rare and, and not having any impact that we just ignore it. And, and so if things continue on the trajectory that they're on, we're going to have to stop ignoring it and really start paying attention to those symptoms. From what I'm hearing, it sounds like, <clears throat> you know, if I'm a producer in Western Canada, I should really get a hold of, of some, some visual um, uh, IDs of, of what this looks like or potentially looks like in the field and, and start, you know, trying to discern that from, from fungal diseases. Because also what I'm hearing is, you know, in those situations where it might be hard to, to differentiate between that and a fungal disease, you know, if we get in there with the fungicide, um, you know, it may be providing absolutely no benefit if it's if it's all a bacterial um, infection. Because uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but 
you know, a fungicide is not going to have any, any kind of um, adverse effects on a bacterial infection. Um, if anything, we may be actually applying a fungicide when it's not really required and then you know, not only not helping the crop that's there, but actually you know, creating a potential for increased resistance from fungal diseases that are yet there. Um, you know, if we go back to, um, you know, not spraying when we don't need to. Yeah, you, you kind of got three different conditions that could happen. One is, you know, you have a primarily fungal leaf spot issue and you apply a timely fungicide and that'll help manage the yield loss. The second option is that you could have both. You could have a significant fungal infection and a significant bacterial infection. And applying the fungicide, again, it will help manage the fungal infection, but it will be a little bit like, um, sorry, it'll be a little bit like spraying water on a bacterial infection, which will make it worse almost, right? Because you're increasing the humidity for a period of time. And then the third option is that it's just a bacterial infection that's really the threat. And, um, and so the fungicide won't provide any benefit. If anything, it would be a negative for the reasons you mentioned that, you know, fungicide resistance issues and your spray, you're applying an input that's not needed. So it's, a, you're wasting your time and money. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it's really important to have that diagnostic sort of nailed down before you try to manage it with a fungicide, because you're absolutely right. Our fungicides the active ingredients are specifically targeted to disrupt metabolism in um, fungi. And uh, in some cases it's respiration. So it's not necessarily totally specific to fungi, but those actives won't, they don't have a target site in bacteria. So they won't, they won't reduce or affect the ability of the bacterium to grow and, and multiply. All right, we're going to pause here and go to a quick commercial break, but we will be right back. Alberta's Crop Protection Guide, otherwise known as the Blue Book, is a coveted and long-standing resource for Alberta farmers and agronomists. The Blue Book is now being produced by Alberta Barley, Alberta Canola, Alberta Pulse Growers, and the Alberta Wheat Commission. That's right, four of Alberta's crop commissions are now producing the Blue Book. Visit albertabluebook.com today and place your advanced pre-order of the 2021 Blue Book with shipping in March. That's albertabluebook.com. I just think of, you know, you mentioned this is this is happening more often in, in southern Alberta. You know, we had a wetter spring. Um, you know, if we are trying to spray for a fung or for a fungus um, that is actually a bacteria, you know, we're aiming to probably spray earlier in the morning to avoid you know, the windy part of the day, which means likely we have a more damp, damp conditions in that, in that crop. And then we're, we're traipsing through there with a sprayer and moving that bacteria all across the field. Um, is that a, is that a potential issue that comes from this as well? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, with fungi, we don't tend to really sort of spread those mechanically. But for things, some viruses and certainly most bacteria, you can spread them mechanically. You, you know, that you'll, even walking through the field, you'll get some bacteria that ooze out of the leaves on your pant leg and then you'll just smear it all down the, the rows that you're walking through. So, you know, certainly farm equipment and anything moving through the field have the potential to spread the bacteria. Um, 
you know, that'd be pretty localized spreading. Same with rain splash. Uh, you know, you'd be spreading it a few meters. Um, but it's the wind and the storm systems that, you know, move it potentially kilometers. If I'm a producer, we know that this is increasing in southern Alberta right now. Potentially there's more seed out there with bacterial infection in there. Um, <clears throat> you know, maybe it wasn't noticed in some areas and, and maybe there's potentially seed that's going in the ground this year. What kind of conditions as a producer and an agronomist am I on the lookout for to then know that I need to be more closely monitoring for those bacterial um, visual symptoms? Yeah, so... Um, there are a group of uh, like-minded industry uh, stakeholders, uh, including researchers that are, we know that a key piece is gonna be a seed test. And so we, we need to work towards being able to have the ability to test a seed lot for the risk of bacterial blight. Um, that's gonna be relatively straightforward to, to have that up and running, except for we won't be able to tell what pathovar it is. And since pathovar affects host range, we still have some, you know, uh, I, I think maybe a longer term before we really have seed testing that can tell you what the absolute risk is. So uh, for example, if you test a seed lot and it comes back positive for xanthomonas translucens, you're going to assume that you have a risk of bacterial leaf streak. But if, if it's Xanthomonas translucens path of our cerealis, it's really only going to affect grasses and weedy and, and grassy weeds. It's not going to impact wheat or barley. Even though it's present in that wheat or barley seed. Yeah. So the, these bacteria exist in populations and some of them are path of ours on wheat and some of them are path of ours on other crops. And anytime you cut a leaf open and let bacteria stream out, you don't just get one thing. You get a whole bunch of stuff, endophytes that don't cause any disease and, and populations that have varying pathovars in the population. So um, yeah, you, you could test positive for something that isn't really gonna present a risk to your wheat crop if, if it's not the, that pathovar. So, in general, yes, if you get a positive for xanthomonas translucens, you need to be concerned about that. But we need to be able to put a finer point on the, the actual risk with pathovar specific detection. And, and right now we can't really do that very well. So, but, but that's, the, that's a key piece. And, and so understanding the risk in a seed lot is gonna be a, a key piece and very quickly, I think we could probably have a test available that could tell you whether xanthomonas translucens is present. And that gives you some idea of how much risk you're taking on. And then, you know, the, the second piece is uh, really gonna be the environment because we don't currently have any cultivars that we know of that have resistance or tolerance to, to bacterial leaf streak or bacterial blight. So, if the pathogen's present and the environment's conducive, then you're going to see symptoms. So <clears throat> when you talk about conducive environment, and maybe you, you know, you've, you've mentioned this a couple of times, it's those wet conditions. Um, so we had a wet spring this year um, and, and you know, headed into kind of an early uh, wet summer. Are those the conditions we're looking at that are really amping um, this up and spreading it within a field? So uh, 
Basically, yes. <clears throat> I think where we live, um, well, I shouldn't say we. I, I honestly don't know where you live, Jeremy. I'm in Calgary. Oh, okay. So we're not far. Um, the uh, in, in southern Alberta and where I live in Brooks, it's pretty dry. So rainfall is going to be probably the the big have the biggest impact on uh, bacterial blight. So it, across a lot of the prairies, rainfall is going to be the biggest determined. Have, have the biggest impact on bacterial blight and bacterial leaf streak. It's not really rainfall that drives the disease, it's humidity. But if we don't get a rain, we don't have high enough humidity for bacteria to survive or, or grow very well it, in, in a lot of the prairies. And so it's really humidity and temperature that will drive the, the disease. That's the, that's the environment side of the disease triangle. And so, you know, if you've got if you've got 20 to 25 degrees and relative humidity above 80, those bacteria are going to be multiplying real fast. And so regardless of the crop stage or the cultivar, um, if the bacterium's there and you've got those conditions, then, then you know you got an issue. Now, you just mentioned that in southern Alberta here, um, we finally had a year that had some thunderstorms, right? I mean, we've had two or three in a row where uh, certainly in Brooks, uh, you know, the pivots were going all summer long because we weren't getting any, we weren't getting almost a drop of rainfall. But, but in 2020, that wasn't the case. We, it seemed like in Brooks every week, a thunderstorm would roll in. And so when a thunderstorm rolls in, you know, anywhere from three to 12 hours before the rain comes, the humidity starts going up. And so if that thunderstorm lasted 24 hours, you could have 48 hours or even more of humidity, um, you know, the humidity range being conducive for bacterial development. And that's very different than a pivot going around once. You know, the, the upper canopy gets wet when the pivot goes around, but you can walk through later in the day and you don't even get your pants wet. So uh, an irrigation event isn't the same as a rain event. And and, and because of the, the effect on humid, the long-term effect on humidity, um, it, it can really get going. Now, if we get a spring in 2021, that's very wet, but the temperatures are only 12 degrees, we're probably not gonna see a lot of bacterial leaf streak multiplication because it's too cold. But as, you know, as soon as we're in that 20 degree range, 15 to 20 degree, 15 to 25, with 20 kind of being the optimum and um, and then humidity above 80%, then then we're, we're at risk. Call me crazy, Mike, but do we, do we not have something that could potentially monitor the risk? I mean, we do have the Fusarium head blight um, uh, forecast or, or uh, risk map, um, and that's based off temperature and humidity. Um, and 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 rainfall you know could we not apply that same concept to something like bacterial leaf stripe yeah for sure you could um i think one of the key differences for bacterial leaf streak and bacterial blight though is that uh, um here here where i am in southern alberta we assume that there's fusarium graminiarum pretty much anywhere you're standing you can throw a rock and hit it it's, it's endemic here, it's well-established. And so 
um, and, and most of our crops have some level of susceptibility. And so it's really just the environment that determines the risk. For bacterial leaf streak, we're still at a point where there's tons of fields that aren't gonna have it. And so then it doesn't matter what the environment does. If the bacteria is not present, you're not gonna see any symptoms. So um, yes, you, you could sort of predict the environmental risk of bacterial leaf streak, but you might get a false sense of risk because you don't know whether or not it's present or not. And, and if it's not there, there's, the environment is, is irrelevant. I'm just thinking if, if, you know, if we did get in a situation where we did have a seed testing, seed testing capability, maybe not even um, path of our specific, but then did have kind of an environmental monitoring. If, if we got a seed test back that said, yes, you are positive um, for bacteria, um, <clears throat> you know, we're not sure how to manage that seed or there's not much seed available or, or left um, to change seed lots then maybe that tool might be a little bit more useful because you're, you're recognizing the risk you have with that seed, knowing the environmental conditions. But then even, even with that information from our discussion, I'm, what I'm getting is there's nothing you can really do in crop anyway to manage it. Yeah, you totally just summed everything right up there. The state of the union is that if we had a seed test and an environmental risk modeling system, that would be two giant steps forward in our ability to understand the risk of bacterial leaf streak. And, and we need those. And, and I think we'll be able to get there relatively soon, depending on how much horsepower we can put toward doing this. This is a disease that's been so poorly studied because of the reason that it's generally just a, an anomaly or a curiosity. It's never really been a, an economic issue. And so, um, we don't even really know enough about it, you know, how to classify it taxonomically, let alone how to, you know, do what you're talking about. But I think we're very close to getting to the point where we could have a seed test um, and, and a, you know, a mapping system that could sort of map out the risk, uh, you know, on a, you know, daily or sliding window in, in time. So, and, and those would be two really big steps forward, but, if you have it on your seed and the environmental conditions are correct, there isn't anything else you can really do about it at this point. We don't have seed treatments for bacteria. We don't have really any in-season bactericidal sprays that can be applied that, I mean, that there are things like copper sulfate or copper hydroxide that are registered for management of some bacterial diseases like bacterial blade and dry bean. Um, but generally, you know, you got to spray those things on a, like a five to seven day application. You got to keep spraying them because, because the bacteria can multiply so quickly. You, you're just on a treadmill and you're just reapplying these things and it's not economical really. Um, so the, the, those, those spray, those bactericidal sprays haven't really proven to be effective, um, certainly not economically effective anywhere. Um, and we don't yet have cultivars with resistance. This hasn't been on the radar of any of the breeders, so they haven't even been looking for it. Now, we know that there is tolerance or and or resistance. It looks like there's major gene resistance and possibly some quantitative resistance to this disease. And there's been some work in the United States that has started to, 
you know, look for this because they're having some of the same issues we are. Um, so there's hope, but uh, sometimes those breeding efforts take time. And, and I don't know that we're gonna have anything, you know, within the next few years uh, to help us out. So the bad news is that even if you can quantify the risk, if it shows up, um, you just kind of have to ride it out. Now we, so, so I guess this kind of leads into what kind of economic damage can be done to this disease. Do you mind if I just talk? Yeah, absolutely. That was my next question. So I'm, I'm curious. Um, so uh, we, we've heard reports of yield losses in Southern Alberta, you know, in the 20 to 30% yield loss range, which is pretty significant. Um, though those producers that had those situations in their fields were not pleased at all. They, they were very disappointed. And, and so it, it, in some fields, uh, reaches levels where it's, it's, you know, it's a real hit. <clears throat> now, um, the, the bacterium will destroy photosynthetic leaf area as those lesions are formed and, uh, in, in cases like when we do infection assays in the greenhouse and we spray the bacteria onto the plants at high numbers, um, you know, within 10 to 14 days, the leaves are just brown and crispy. They, they just completely die. So the lesions elongate, you know, along the veins, but they eventually coalesce and the whole leaf just turns brown and crunchy. And it, so in those cases, obviously, if that happens to your flag leaf, you're going to have smaller kernels. You're going to potentially, depending on how early it happens, even have, you know, aborted kernels and, and all kinds of other things. So generally speaking, when we see the disease reach these high levels, um, they're, they're causing a significant amount of damage to the flag leaf and they're just causing the head to not fill as well as it would if it, if it still had the flag leaf photosynthesizing. And, and that tends to be the big issue. Um, the secondary issue though, is that uh, as it gets splashed around, it gets onto the head and causes a gloom blotch. And then it becomes kind of almost permanently associated with the seed. So, you know, if you're harvesting it for grain, uh, it's not really an issue, but if you're saving that grain to be used as seed, now you have, uh, you just, in so, so, you know, the first time it shows up, you've got a little bit associated with the grain, but then if you use that grain the second season as seed, you just ratcheted up the risk a significant amount. And so the more times in succession that that happens, the risk goes up and up and up and up. That's certainly what they've seen in the United States. And I think we're starting to see the beginnings of that here now too. So um, in, in addition to the yield loss issue, uh, it can get more and more difficult to produce seed that doesn't have the inoculum associated with it. All right, we're going to pause here and go to a quick commercial break, but we will be right back. Want to be involved in shaping the sustainable future for Canadian grain farmers? The Responsible Grain Code of Practice is currently in draft form and needs input from farmers. Responsible Grain is a voluntary and science-based code of practice that demonstrates Canadian grain farmers' care and commitment to the environment. Register for an online introductory session January 2021 to get involved. Visit responsiblegrain.ca to learn more and register today. So I'm 
<clears throat> you know, think about what we've we've chatted about here. You know, we, we don't have a, an available seed test yet. Hopefully we'll have something soon. You know, whether that's going to give a strong indication. Fungicides aren't going to, to help us at this point. Seed treatments aren't going to help us at this point. Variety selection isn't going to help us at this point. Um, visual in the field is 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 difficult to distinguish if we're not looking for it so education and knowledge on what visuals look like is going to be super important you know if i'm a producer in western canada right now is there a way that i can get an understanding of where this is potentially causing having an impact in in western canada right now so i can say yes i'm in a risk zone or no i'm in a risk zone and then you know on top of that you know, that could maybe help make a decision around whether I use that seed or not. Um, but then I guess my, my conversation with a seed producer or my, or my, my seed grower, um, I'm going to have to have some frank conversations with them to get an understanding whether they think they're at risk as well. Yeah, um, you know, our, our seed producers do a great job of managing issues in, in their fields. And, and so I know some of the seed producers that, that live you know, close by to me and, and those guys do a great job. Uh, so, but, but yeah, I mean, you're it, on your farm, that seed is a really important input. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having those conversations. Um, uh, you know, the, the seed growers are probably already doing everything that they can do to help mitigate, you know, any of these disease issues, including this one, but this is one that's sneaking in and it's real pernicious. And, you know, we, right now, we don't really have the tools we need to fight back. So we, we just told you it's hard to recognize it, hard to recognize the symptoms. If you do see the symptoms, there's nothing you can do about it. And it's potentially gonna cause, you know, up to 30% yield loss. So we, we've essentially just told you kind of some worst case scenario stuff. In the end, this is going to be like any other issue that producers have had. You know, every cereal producer has had something show up on their farm that they weren't used to dealing with, and they've they've figured it out. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. Um, we we have the technology, we've got the breeding programs, you know, we've got access to uh, you know things like user requested minor use label expansions that we could get a seed treatment, you know, potentially registered in a short period of time. So we have lots of ways that we can sort of work at getting this contained. And we also have the, the good fortune of having this kind of show up um, about a decade earlier in the Midwest of the United States. So they've already started doing a lot of this work. Um, so we are getting a better idea of how to position this taxonomically and how to understand the path of ours and how to test for them and et cetera. So, we're gonna be able to benefit a lot from the work that's been done in the US. And, and then especially if this does become something that's established on the prairies and it becomes a chronic issue, you know, the breeders can go to work and find some, you know, uh, either major gene or minor gene resistances that they can move into our elite lines and, and start breeding cultivars that, that can help us manage the issue. And that, that'll come with time. Now, this so bacterial leaf streak the first time that i saw it was in 2012. that's not the first time it was in alberta that's just the first time i saw it in a field and um <clears throat> for the next three years after that we didn't hear a single report and then it was in 2017 that we saw it again 
and then it's just, we've slowly been hearing more about it ever since 2017, 2018. And then 2020 was really a breakout year. And, and I think, because like I said, a lot of those planets kind of all aligned. It was now present as inoculum in a number of seed sources and fields and the environment was great and all our varieties are conducive. So kaboom here, all of a sudden we're seeing so much of it. Now, having said that, um, depending on how much of it ended up on seed and depending on what the environment is going to be in 2021, it could just fade away. And that's what it has done in the past. It's kind of, it's kind of emerged and then it recedes. And then a decade later, it'll emerge and then it'll recede. And so hopefully something like that happens again, but um, usually it's kind of a one and done scenario. We'll see it one year and then it'll be gone. And we've kind of seen it three years in a row now and, and seeing some evidence that it might be uh, becoming a little more entrenched. So I think having conversations like this are good. We need to be more aware of it. We need to scout for it and really sort of characterize what's going on and help and start now to develop some tools to help us evaluate risk and then, and then manage it with things like seed treatments and, and resistant, resistant cultivars that hopefully will, will come um, in the near future if this continues to be an issue. It's, uh, you know, in the readings that I did you know, prior to our conversation, one of the things that came up uh, on the regular was the abandonment of research studies looking at uh, bacterial issues because of <laughs> the instability of, its, of, its, of the issues, right? Like, you know, we see it for a while and then, and then it, it tapers off. So it's, you know, this research isn't providing any results because there's no issues there to, to study. So, um, you know, at, at, one, at one point as a researcher, I'm sure it's like, it'd be nice it was there so we can study it and get a better understanding and, and um, you know, manage it when it is here. Um, but we don't want to see it because we know that when it's here, it's impacting producers' profits. So it's it's a bit of a conundrum, but, you know, hopefully we, we gain some further understanding and benefit from, from what's going on in the U.S. as much as, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to see um, this stuff impacting producers anywhere. But um, uh, I think, you know, we've been chatting here for, for 40 minutes or so, but, I, you know, I think we'll bring it to an end at this point. Uh, Mike, this has been um, so informative and I greatly appreciate you taking the time. Um, you know, is, if a producer sees something in their field, can they contact you? Can they, can they get it tested in your lab or, or what does that look like? Is there, is there any way that they can um, get further information? Yeah, we're, we're always interested to, to know where it's showing up and, and you know, the, if it's getting worse or better. So if you need a little bit of diagnostic support, my lab's happy to help with that. We can easily do the bacterial streaming test to tell you if it's a bacterial issue or not. Um, I don't, can you post my email and phone number somewhere? Yep. I can, I can share it as, as part of this um, after the fact. So um, anyone who's listening to this, you know, take a look at the, in the, in the information section and I'll, I'll put it in there. Yeah. And for more information, um, Dr. Kelly Turkington, who has been, uh, you know, a real help and, and advocate to get the word out for this disease as well is putting together a disease. It's like a card that has shows symptoms and how to scout for it and how to recognize it and what to do about it. And he's going to be posting some of that information on the Prairie Crop Disease Monitoring Network website, I believe, or maybe through social media on Twitter. So if you contacted, Jeremy, if you contacted Kelly and got that disease card, that would be a great sort of introduction to how to look for and, and scout for, for the disease. Perfect. 
Well, again, Mike, thank you so much for this information and taking the time. Um, I'm sure, uh, again, producers will find a lot of value in this. So um, I will let you go. So thank you. And uh, I'm sure we'll chat again in the future, Mike. Great. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for listening to the Growing Point Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a second to rate, review, and share this podcast with all of your friends. This helps us grow and get our message out. You can also sign up for the Growing Point newsletter by going to Alberta Wheat or albertabarley.com and sign up for our mailing list. This will help you stay up to date on all the agronomic information we share through articles, interviews, and the newsletter. See you next time.